You're listening to the Beach Haven Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Orr, and I have the privilege of serving as the worship pastor here at Beach Haven Church in Athens, Georgia. This is the second in our message series titled Jesus on Every Page. And without further ado, our senior pastor, Rob Timms. And uh, congregation, if you'll turn in your, your Bible or your, your Bible app to Genesis chapter 3, where uh, Clay just read from, and we'll uh, take the next step in our series, Jesus on Every Page. Um, and because it is the second week of the series, let me, let me just remind you what, what we're doing. Um, if you go into my uh, office right, right behind the, the baptistry over here, you'll see about five or 600 books. There are bookshelves for 5,000 books. There's, I got a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of filling up to do, uh, but there are lots and lots of books back there. And if you grabbed any one book and grabbed any one page from inside of that book, that page that you read will in some way connect to the book as a whole. Right? There's nothing in one book that an author puts in there that doesn't contribute to the main idea or the main point that the author's trying to make in the book as a whole. Now, there's one exception in there where that's not the case, and it's an English anthology um, that I kept from my college years uh, at Furman University because I just really love the teacher and I really the way that she opened up English literature to me. And inside that book, there are poems, there are short stories, there are uh, novellas, and there's all kinds of different kinds of literature and there's no relationship between any of those things in the book. But almost all the books, otherwise one page, you pull it out, it's about the whole book. And the Bible is like those books. You could pull out one page from the Bible and everything in that, uh, everything on that page uh, could in some way find you pointing to the main idea, which is the person of Jesus. So many of us have looked at the Bible as an anthology, the Old Testament over here, the New Testament over there, the stories about all the laws over here, and then some random stories about Jesus over there, this weird prophet, this guy with the weird Hebrew name over here, and all these other things, you know, Jesus coming out of clouds and weird stuff over there. And we think it's disparate and it's separate, but that's not really the case. Every page that you turn to is in a way contributing to the main idea, the person of Jesus. Jesus is quite literally on every page of the Bible. And so we are working through, uh, the, um, the, through the Bible in kind of a chronology, if you will, looking at different ways in which the person of Jesus is being pointed to or being revealed to us. And we're going to continue to do that today in Genesis chapter three. Four uh, years ago, I took one of my then high school students to the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles, so he could take and subsequently fail his driver's test. Not the driving part, the written test. And um, in that experience, uh, we sat there for several hours. We showed up, you know how it is when you go to the DMV, you show up uh, right when it opens, if not a few minutes before. And when you get there, there are 30 people waiting in line who got the same idea as you, or they had the same responsibilities. And we walked in and got our number and sat down and we sat there for 
hours for him to later fail. Did I say he failed? He failed his written uh, DMV test. And in sitting there for several hours, I began to realize that maybe this wasn't the most well-run establishment in the history of government, right? So I don't know if they were poorly managed. I don't know if they just didn't have the resources. I don't know if they had policies that were just really hard to, to execute, but it just seemed to me and it, that, that it could be much better run. Uh, I don't know if you've ever gone into a place and thought that. I, maybe it's because I'm prideful. I am prideful, but maybe it's because I think I know it all. I do think I know it all, but that was the way that I felt in that moment. And my son failing his test at the end did not help my, you know, my mindset at all. But, but as I looked around the room, you know, I'm going, man, this could just, this could be over by now if they would just let me be in charge. This would, this would totally be great if they would just let me run this place. I could see other parents with other teenagers looking at me and we're looking at each other and we're, and they're thinking the same thing. They're thinking the exact same thing. This is a poorly run establishment. Why does it take four hours for my son to fail or for my daughter to fail their driver's test? Did I mention he failed the driver's test? I mean, it was just, it was just a very, very frustrating experience. Nobody was sitting in there going, man, this is a very well-run establishment. There are no problems. Everybody agrees on everything. This is great. I don't think anybody's ever said that about any DMV ever, right? But having the solidarity with the other parents in the room gave me some sense of hope. At least we all agreed. At least we all agreed that there were a lot of problems and that they really did need to be, as we say in the South, fixed. They needed to be fixed. And what is true of the DMV is true of all of us humanity at large. The reason the DMV is the way that it is is because human beings are involved. Everybody agrees with you about humanity that there are problems. Everybody agrees that we need to work on these problems. But here's the thing. <laughs> We've been working on this humanity thing for a really long time, a really long time. And we don't seem to be getting any better at it. Humanity is kind of like an amateur golf game, right? You go out there for the first time and you're terrible on virtually everything about the golf round. If you haven't tried this, you should certainly try this. Go out there and have an amateur golf round because what's gonna happen is you'll be really terrible except for like these one or two amazing shots that you somehow pull out of your pocket and do, and you make this 20 foot putt and you chip it really close to the hole and you actually get on a green in regulation just two or three times. The rest of your strokes are really terrible, but you just got it two or three times and you have just enough hope and just enough enthusiasm to wanna come back and try it again. That's what it's like to be human. We have all these problems. We have all these people. We keep making mistakes. We all kind of wanna work on it, but we just don't seem to be making any progress. How did we get like this? And for all the problems that we have, what's our biggest one? Can we agree on what the biggest one is so that we can work on that? And does the Bible have anything to say about this? And the answer is yes, in its entirety, but foundationally, that is why we look at Genesis Three. Genesis 3 answers the questions about the nature of the problems of humanity. It is foundational 
not only to the Christian worldview of what it means to be human, but it is also foundational to our understanding of the Bible. The world makes no sense if you don't understand Genesis 3, and the Bible makes no sense if you don't understand and grasp Genesis 3. So I want us to take some time this morning to see Genesis 3, not only for what it actually is and how it explains to us why human beings are the way that we are, why we have all the problems that we have, but it also reveals something to us about the nature and the character of God and what he has done to start solving our problems. So let's look. Let's look at the temptation. Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Your translation may say crafty or prudent or shrewd or something like that, but you get the, get the idea. And the serpent said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now, one of the things that I want you to notice about the serpent's approach to temptation is that it doesn't begin with a contradiction about who God is or what he said. It begins with a question about who God is and what he said. It doesn't begin with a contradiction. It begins with a question. When I was growing up, uh, there were very limited TV options. And so what was on is what was on. And one of the people that I started to uh, get, one of the sports that I started to get behind was professional boxing, because for some reason that was on TV a lot. And there was a really famous boxer named Mike Tyson. Does anybody remember? Remember, you know, that's right. Crazy Mike. In fact, he got his own Nintendo game that I eventually beat because my parents raised me on television. And um, so Mike, Mike Tyson would come out when he fought, he would come out at the bell, opening bell of the first round. And as soon as he had you in the middle of the, of the ring, he would come out with a crazy left hook. I don't know if you remember this, but he would instantly throw this wild left hook that was so stunning that even if you knew it was coming, it would still make this negative impact you on you and it would intimidate you throughout the rest of the round if you made it that far with Mike Tyson. And that's not what the serpent does here. He doesn't come out swinging with a direct contradiction to what God has said back in Genesis 2. Instead, the serpent raises a question for discussion. He invites Eve and Adam to entertain the possibility that maybe, just maybe, there's a lack of clarity about what God said or what God meant and what the implications of that would be. The serpent is skeptical. The serpent is cynical. And it's truly cunning because by approaching it this way, <clears throat> it gives Eve and Adam the, um, the mindset that they could evaluate or judge God's word according to some internal standard of their own. The serpent is not introducing them to an opportunity to interpret God's word. He is, he's calling to question what God said and what he meant, which is not an invitation to interpretation. It's an invitation to evaluation. He's inviting them to judge. He's elevating, he's inviting even Adam to elevate their own minds for them to be the standard by which we understand who God is and what he has 
said. So the question, not the contradiction, not that first. What comes first is the question. It elevates the minds of Eve and elevates the mind of Adam as some sort of judge or evaluator of God and what he has said. And the serpent does this intentionally by making a mistake, if you will, inciting what God has said which also further invites Eve and Adam into the role of judge over the words. He says in verse one, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Of course he did. That's not at all what God said, but that's the mistake that the serpent intentionally makes to draw Adam and Eve in as to evaluate, as to judge. But it does even more than this. By exaggerating what God has forbidden, the serpent puts into the mind of Eve and Adam that God is no fun. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Is God really no fun, Eve? Is God really a killjoy, Adam? Does God really make life so hard for you? God doesn't want you to have any pleasure. God isn't happy unless you're miserable. And the moment you and I think that there's any truth to that, we assume that we have the right to judge God and maybe even rebel against him because if God's not for me, if he's not for my good, if he's not for my joy, if he's not for my pleasure, if he is all about something else other than me, well, I can't have that. So look at Eve's response in verse two. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Now Eve starts off pretty strong here, doesn't she? You know, right out of the gate, she rebukes the serpent's exaggeration and yet by responding at all, Eve effectively accepts the invitation to evaluate God's command. She accepts the invitation to entertain other possible interpretations of what God had said. And in your own time, or maybe even on Wednesday night in our adult study to this week, if you wanna go back and compare what God said in chapter two with how Eve summarizes it here in chapter three, you will notice she makes a number of missteps in contrast to what God has actually said. But one of the things that she leaves out is really fascinating that I want you to notice this morning. If you go back to chapter two, the Lord had said to them, you can eat from any tree with the exception of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And that they could eat from any tree Freely, He uses those words, any, with the exception of one, and you can go freely, right? So one of the vacations that I love and remember from our family is, is a cruise. We did a family cruise and it's the reason we do it is because it removes the burden of having to make a decision about what I'm gonna eat, where I'm gonna eat and how much money I'm gonna spend when I eat when I got six mouths to feed and things. So we just pay for it and we just go. And I can say to the kids, you can eat anything and you can eat freely. And it's so liberating, it's so fun. And that's what God does in the garden. He says, you can eat any and you can do so freely. And when Eve recounts, 
to the serpent, which she remembers about this conversation. She has removed the any and she has removed the freely. And she's actually added more restrictions about touching that weren't even present in the original command. She has failed to remember how liberal God is. She's failed to remember how generous God is. She's failed to remember how abundantly good and gracious and kind God is that he was to Eve and to Adam. The serpent has implied to her that God was frugal, that God was a killjoy, that God holds back good things from her. Then Eve's response seems to suggest that she's open to considering that possibility. Indeed, she's even forgetting how good and kind and gracious that he was to her. Now, I don't want to play. Yes, I do. I do. I'm going to play Monday morning quarterback for Eve and Adam here. I play Monday morning quarterback every Monday morning when the Cowboys, Dallas Cowboys have played on Sunday. They would be 16, 17 and 0 if they would just listen to me on Monday morning. Like I'm really good at playing Monday morning quarterback for Dak Prescott and, and the Cowboys. But let's do this for Adam and Eve, right? Why doesn't she respond with a long list of all the ways that God has been so good to her? Where, where is the, Thomas Chalmers says, you know, we need an expulsive power of a new affection. Where is the expulsive power of her affection for God? Why, why is her love for him not just blowing away any, any temptation to, to not trust him? Why doesn't she go on and on about how awesome the garden is or, or how much her husband loves her about how everything that she eats is amazing and how God is at the center of her being? Why why doesn't she do that? Instead, she begins to entertain the possibility that she can stand in judgment of God. So look what the serpent does, knowing that this is now her mindset. Look at verse four. He says, no, you will certainly not die. The serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So now the temptation is ramped up. It started with a question. Let's have a discussion. Let's have a conversation about the possibility that just maybe there's another way to understand the way that God has spoken. But now comes the direct contradiction from the serpent. And do you see the first doctrine underneath that is denied by the serpent. The first doctrine that is denied in the Bible is the, is the doctrine that God is judge. That's what's denied here. The first doctrine that's denied in the whole Bible is the doctrine of God's judgment. And if you remove the truth that God is judged, then what happens is you liberate yourself from any potential downside. You will not die. God will not judge you for this action. The first denial is that God is not holy, that God does not care about sin, that God is not a, a judge, that God will not hold you accountable for your sin, that there will be no payment for anything that you do that's against God. And the moment you remove the truth that God has judged, then you liberate yourself from any downside should you choose not to do what God has said. And to contradict God, which is what the serpent is doing, is, is to call God a liar, which is what the serpent does in this passage. Now, look really closely at verse five. 
verse four and five. Because if, if, you, if you look very closely, you will learn something about the nature of temptation that I think will serve you very well when, you're, when you are considering the, the vast amount of discernment that you need to navigate and walk in obedience to the Lord. Everything in this passage is simultaneously true and false. Everything the serpent says here in verses four through five is true and it is also false. You will certainly not die. Well, if you keep reading, Eve takes the fruit, Adam takes it with her and they eat and they did not drop dead. They did not immediately die. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, which is a metaphor, which is a a figure of speech for gaining knowledge. And sure enough, when Eve and Adam take the fruit and they eat of it, they do gain knowledge. That is true, it happened. You will be like God in this way, knowing good and evil. And indeed, this happened for Eve and for Adam. They did come to know what God knows about the nature of good and evil. So everything that the serpent said here was in many, it was true. It was true. And yet it is also false. The serpent not only spoke truthfully, but he lied cleverly because he withheld information with the intent to deceive them. It's not what the serpent said as much as it is what he didn't say. He told Eve only what she would gain, but he did not tell her what she would lose. No, they, they didn't die immediately, but they would be, you didn't tell her this, but if you do eat this, you will be expelled from the garden and you will not have access to the tree of life, which is perpetuating you and you will be absent from God and you'll be absent from the garden, which means inevitably you will die. Didn't tell her that. Yes, they gained Knowledge, knowledge of guilt, knowledge of shame. Yes, they became God in this way of knowing, the, uh, knowing of good and knowing of evil. And yet they, they know about it in a way that God doesn't know. God does not know evil subjectively. God does not know evil experientially. God cannot, he cannot do those things. He knows it thoroughly, objectively, but Adam and Eve don't understand it all objectively. But let me tell you, they understand everything about it experientially and subjectively because they've done it. So yeah, they became like God, but along with it, they separated themselves from God. They got knowledge of good and evil and the result was isolation and fear and death. So do you understand just how powerful and effective temptation is. It rarely comes out with a direct contradiction to the word of God that you can easily identify like a true false exam. It's subtle. It invites you to consider the possibilities and ramifications of maybe there's a different way to look at this. Maybe God meant to say this, that, or the other. And you ele- we elevate ourselves as evaluators, as judges, not as interpreters, not somebody who comes humbly to the word and wants to receive it and be changed by it. But we come to it as observers, as evaluators, as judges in a sterile kind of way to remain over it. And in so doing, we believe these half truths that are also full lies. And we end up 
in rebellion, in isolation, in fear. We have all the problems that we have in our world because of this problem right here. My parents, my mother, um, my parents divorced. I was in uh, senior year in high school. It's a really awesome story. One day I can tell you about it. And they remarried and, and both have done exceptionally well um, in, their, in their second lives together. My mother passed away in 2016. So from the last five, six years, seven years of her life, she lived in Venice, Florida. Sometimes I just say Venice and people think, ooh, no, Venice, Florida, okay? Which is Sarasota, Tampa, Sarasota, Bradenton, just keep going down southwest and you'll eventually land in Venice before you get to Naples. So we spent a lot of time in Venice. Usually over the holidays, we drive 14 hours with young children in the van all the way down to Venice and spend a few days with my mom and stepdad. And one year uh, we did that and then we decided to go see some friends on the east coast of Florida. So we were gonna drive south from Venice over to Naples and then take Alligator Alley across the state of Florida to go visit some friends that we had done ministry with in the West Palm Beach area on the east coast. So after lunch, we got in the car, we drove south and the kids were already like, I had two boys at the time and they're you know, preschool Great, young grade school age and they're going you know, bananas in the back of the car and we're trying to restrict skiing time and teach them to read and all. And I'm like, we got, we got to do something. They're going nuts. And so we, we pull into Naples and there's a sign for Loudermilk Beach. And if you turn right off the highway, you're like a mile, you're there. It's amazing. And there was nobody there because it was winter. It was you know, about 70 degrees. So it's warm enough to sit out there, but the water is still pretty cold in the Gulf uh, in late December. But, so we thought, okay, guys, listen, just roll up your jeans you know, just roll them up here a little bit and just go, we'll just, we'll go play in the sand and run up and down the, the beach and we'll dodge the water as it comes in. We'll just get our feet wet. We'll just get our, we'll just get our feet wet. Well, if you've ever done that with young children, you know exactly what happened, right? We weren't there an hour. And before you know it, the boys are just completely soaked in ocean water and they're swimming in their blue jeans. And, and they, we get them into the van and there's sand coming out of every crevice of everything in their body and there's, I'm shaking out their underwear and their blue jeans, trying to get, we don't have, you know, I mean, it's just like what, we went there with the intention of just getting our feet wet. And before you know it, we are absolutely covered in everything. And this is what I want you to understand about the nature of temptation and sin. You think you're just gonna get your feet wet. But before you know it, you're covered in a mess and you've got a huge problem. The temptation to sin is not just an invitation to break a single rule. It's an invitation to revolt. In the same way that going to the beach with your blue jeans on and rolled up is not just an invitation to get your feet wet. It's actually an invitation to soak your body because you're four years old and you don't know better. That is the exact same thing that's going on with our sin. It's not just breaking of a rule. It is replacing God with yourself. It is you being king and not him. Eve and Adam woke up with God at the center of their being for who knows how long. He was their center. And because he was their center, they rightly related to his word and they were rightly related to one another. And now, now, with the eating of the fruit from the knowledge of good and evil from that tree, they are at the center and God needs to exist to please them. 
Does that sound familiar to you? I know what we were playing Monday morning, Monday morning quarterback just a little bit ago, but the fact of the matter is I would have done exactly as Eve and Adam would have done. You would have done exactly what Eve and Adam did. You are Eve. You are Adam. I'm Eve. I'm Adam. I replaced knowing God and being with God and enjoying God. I replaced that with trying to be God. I was just gonna get my feet wet, but I ended up covered in a mess. And the fallout from this choice is a massive inversion of reality. If you look at Genesis chapter three, verses eight through 13, you will see the beginning of all kinds of uh, fallout. There's shame, which is evidenced by the hiding from, they start hiding from one another and they create their own covers over their body. There is a broken relationship with God. If you look at verses eight through 10, their fellowship with God is broken. God comes looking for them, pursuing them, which I'll talk about here in just a minute. But they in one sin, one sin, because it's not just a sin, it's not just breaking a rule, it's a revolution. One sin, they can't be in God's presence. They defy him and now they're not even prepared to meet him. They could run to him and now they're running from him. And then there's a broken relationship with each other in verses 11 through 13. God's like, hey, uh, where are you guys at? What happened? And Adam says, well, the woman that you gave me did this to me. They're broken between the three, between the two of them. And those are just the initial results. There, there are more. If you go in and read verses 15 through 19, God outlines for them what the specific repercussions are. There are curses and there are consequences associated with their, their choices. But in the midst of all the fallout, I want to show you something about the character of God. Look at verse 21. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife and he clothed them. Now, watch this. I defy you. I want to be you. I am better than you. You're a killjoy. You're no fun. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm now in fear. I'm now in isolation. I didn't ask for any of these things, but I got all these things because I was foolish and believed a sin that I didn't want to, and I don't want anything. I'm in full revolt. The Lord God made clothing from skins and he clothed them. I remember the day when my three-year-old could get dressed by himself. Oh, that was a glorious day. Do you know how exhausting it is to have the, to constantly put on other people's clothes for them because they are helpless and cannot do it for themselves. I remember the day how glorious it was when I didn't have to say, let me come and help you get dressed. Folks, do you see the nature and the character and the love of God in this moment? No sooner are Adam and Eve guilty than does God provide a solution for them. He takes the skins of an animal, which therefore dies, 
and he covers them over. He makes, he provide, he created, he provided the animal. He provided the sacrifice and he took the skins and he went over to them. The very first sacrifice in the Bible was provided by God. The very first sacrifice in the Bible was made by God and God took the covering from the sacrifice and he got them dressed. The ones who revolted, the ones who rebelled, the ones who replaced him, he walked over to them and he covered them with his sacrifice. He takes the skin of an animal which has died and he covers over them. Why? Because he wants to see them as sinless. He wants to see them as shameless. He wants to be in a restored relationship with them. And so this sacrifice will not be the last. Because who knows for how many millennia there are going to be countless more sacrifices of animals that God made and that God provided. Sacrifices by Noah, sacrifices under Abraham, sacrifices under Moses, sacrifices prescribed to the people and to the priests and to the kings until one day, one glorious day, there would be one acceptable sacrifice, not of an animal, but of the spotless lamb, not just provided by God, but one who was God. So Paul considers all of this and he sums it up for us in this one beautiful text, 2 Corinthians 5. He says this, he made the one, God made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us. What does that mean? It means the spotless lamb lived this perfect life that you and I could not. Adam couldn't do it. Eve couldn't do it. Abel wasn't, it's not gonna be, Noah couldn't do it. Nobody's gonna be able to do it until one day Jesus is here and he does it, y'all, he does it. He did what Adam could not do. He lived in perfect obedience to the Father. He is the perfect Adam. He is the, as it is said, the true and the better Adam. And God took his life and took the sin of you and took the sin of everybody else before and everybody else is ever gonna be. Outside of time, God took all the sin that's ever gonna exist ever, 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 and for eternity and he put it on Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for him so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One sacrifice to satisfy the payment for sin for all people, for all time, who, if you believe it, if you lean into it and in trust us, you become like the one who died for you. You take on the righteousness of Jesus. His goodness, his perfection is yours. It's declared to be true about you through a sacrifice that God made, through a sacrifice that God provided, through the very sacrifice of God himself. What Adam and Eve could not do, Jesus did for you. And this was always the nature of God. From the very beginning, the very first sacrifice made was provided by God. The very first sacrifice that was made was done by God. And he applied the effect of that sacrifice on the Eve and Adam. And what he did for Eve and Adam, he does for all of us that we want to believe in what he's done for Jesus. Do you believe what he's done for you in Jesus? Do you trust in it? Do you believe in it? 
You know, sin is a very simple act, but it took God himself to taste poverty and death to undo it. God did not take our rebellion lightly. He is just and he is justifier. He, he, he sent the one to pay the price for us. He's just, Jesus paid it. But God justifies us by grace through faith when we believe and trust that he did it on our behalf. He is a God of holiness and he is a God of love. And those things meet in the person of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. Do you believe it? Do you trust it? What Genesis 3 points out to us is that God is going to handle our biggest problem, which is our rebellion. We got a lot of problems in this world, don't we? The DMV is not really a problem until you need something from them. But we've got all kinds of problems in this world. And the Lord equips and he sends the spirit and he, and he gives us talents and we, we work, we bring mercy to the world to, to help solve these problems. But our core problem, our biggest problem is our sin problem. And God has acted to solve it. Do you believe it? Do you trust it? I pray that you do.